Hello Tom Knights, Laurie here. Before we get started, I'd like to apologise in advance for the mostly okay, but sometimes not so fantastic audio for our guest. We'll work on improving audio for our future guests, but until then, thanks for listening and enjoy. I still recall from the books I read All the great empires built in my head But every year I raise one more I bought it out and a wardrobe door But I, I'm still seeking something I'm still seeking something Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Seeking Tumnus, the podcast where we oscillate between contemporary young adult fiction and revisitations of the books that took us into strange new worlds when we were young. My name is Laurie and I'm joined by my fellow hosts, the fun guy, Patrick Moon. Hi. The never sporing, Keith Rowe. Hello. And she with not much room for nonsense, Bree. <laughs> Hello. These are revolting. Thanks, Lou. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> we interrupt our regular schedule this episode as we've been given a couple of review copies and the opportunity to speak with James Bradley. Those of you swooning with loins of flame, hold on, for this is not Bradley James, known for his rather fetching portrayal of Arthur Pendragon in the very C-grade fantasy romp Merlin, but James Bradley, award-winning author, Australian author, and renowned critic. He's just released The Silent Invasion, a young adult novel set in Australia. It's a science fiction work. Huzzah! And we are absolutely delighted to have James on the line with us. Welcome, James. Hi. It's great to be here. Thanks. Before we begin in earnest, can you tell our listeners that haven't had a chance to pick up the book yet what they can expect from the book plot-wise? Sure. Look, the book is Silent Invasion is the first book in a trilogy of novels. It is set about 10 years after alien spores came to Earth and started metamorphosing Earth's biology and connecting animals, people, plants into a kind of giant hive mind. And they're about a young, a teenage girl called Callie whose sister Gracie begins to change. She begins to to be affected by the spores and Callie tries to get her to the zone, which is where the They've walled off the the alien biology, hoping that that will keep her safe. Yeah, great. That's a that's a great synopsis of the book. Just so our listeners can get a bit of a feel for the tone and direction of the book, would you mind reading a sample? Ah, uh, sure. Um, I'll read a section from oh, chapter four. The night the change arrived, there was nothing to suggest the world was about to be transformed forever. I was six, and I remember my father waking me in the middle of the night, carrying me outside. In our backyard, he knelt down and pointed upward. From horizon to horizon, green traceries of light filled the sky, flaring and fading like shooting stars. What is it? I asked, but my father only shook his head. I don't know. Some kind of meteor shower, perhaps, or a solar storm. I was too young to hear the hesitation in his voice, the suggestion he knew it wasn't either. But I was old enough to recognise the look on his face when he put me back to bed a few hours later. What's wrong? I asked, but he only smiled brushed my hair away from my face and told me it was nothing. But it wasn't nothing. Later we would realise the lights had been the seed pods that bore the change to earth, igniting and releasing their contents as they hit the upper reaches of the atmosphere. My father was a scientist, a geneticist with an interest in divergent biologies, and even that first night he knew that what was happening in the sky was not normal, that it had to be caused by something man-made, a weapon perhaps, or something even stranger. And so when we woke the next morning to find what looked like drifts of gossamer spiderweb spread across the trees and streets outside our house, he was not delighted but alarmed. To me, they seemed beautiful, magical, and I longed to be able to run outside, grab handfuls of them as I could see other children doing. But he locked the door and told me to stay inside. His voice tightened hard as he called his colleagues in search of somebody who might understand what was going on. That's just a short bit. It's fantastic. That's great. I remember... When reading that, James, if Day of the Triffids has taught me anything, it's to be very scared of seed pods falling from the sky. <laughs> and to be scared of lights in the sky. Yeah. <laughs> very, yeah. I, look, there's a, Triffids was one of the books, things the book came from, so it seemed a nice way of kind of giving a nod to it. 
Yeah, that was a great homage. It's nice to actually have the author reading these books rather than our sad attempts to replicate that. I'm sure you bring more to it than I do. I uh, sometimes listen to audio books and you listen to kind of, you know, Kate Winslet reading something and you think, God, she does it so much better than the writer. <laughs> <laughs> I used to deliberately pick audio books that were read by Stephen Fry because his dulcet tones were just so delightful. I was about to mention Stephen Fry, actually. He's got a bit of a rep, doesn't he? <laughs> he does. He's fantastic. Do you hope one day Stephen Fry may narrate one of your books, James? Could, could be on the cards. <laughs> Possibly, I don't know. They, they're probably all too Australian for Stephen Fry. <laughs> but yeah, I've uh, just listened to a, an unabridged audiobook version of The Hobbit with one of my kids, which was fantastic, but was in that kind of, you know, rolling kind of English actor voice the whole way through. There you go, Bree. That might be the perfect one for you. You kind of um, preempted one of the, the questions that I was going to ask you, and I'm probably going out of turn here from the list we had, but you, you mentioned that the book's might be a bit too Australian for Stephen Fry. And that was kind of something that really struck me with this book was that it was very grounded in Australia. Do, do you think there like is a bit of a cultural cringe or something like that for writers, for people who are producing media about setting things distinctly in Australia? Yes and no would be my answer to that. Um, look, I do it quite deliberately. I have a real thing about, you know, I, I live in Australia. I, I, you know, I am Australian. I'm want to write things, but I, I don't want to be anxious about the Australianness. So it seems to me the end of the world comes, it can come just as easily in Australia as anywhere else, but I don't want to write something that's, you know, so anxious about being Australian that it's constantly playing that up. I, I want to write things that are kind of comfortable with it being Australian because it's it's totally appropriate. It should be here. I do think that there is, you know, there are other things that play often, I suspect. I mean, I think often when people are writing these kinds of things, they've got one eye to a kind of international market and I don't mm. think international markets are terribly to Australian things. Um, and look, and simultaneously, I do think there is a, a question which is a kind of deeper question about, you know, the, if it's science fiction, about how do you do science fiction in an Australian context? Do you know what I mean? It's such an, an Anglo-American form that, you know, it just feels a bit odd often. But yeah, so I was trying quite, you know, it was quite important to me to be here. It struck me as, as unique and quite nice, actually, coming from that Australian perspective to have something that actually felt closer to home. Yeah, look, I hope um, that's great. I'm glad it did. And I mean, and also, it's always a problem with Australian speculative stuff that ends up, you know, there's an assumption that as soon as it's here, it's in the desert. It's like Mad Max, I think, a lot of the time, which is, which is a pity. But there's lots of fantastic spec fix set in Australia, so it can be done. You know, it just, I, I think it, 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 it is important to me that it, it be like that, but not in an anxious kind of way. Mm. It's funny that you mentioned, or one of the major settings in the book was Port Macquarie, because two of us have a pretty deep connection to Port Macquarie. Both Patrick and I, our family, live in Port Macquarie, and uh, the setting was very familiar, but I have to admit I was a little bit disappointed that when they were crossing the river, they weren't harangued by bull sharks <laughs> in the Hastings River. Oh, there are bull sharks in the Hastings River. I didn't know that. Yeah, there are. And porpoises, <laughs> lots of porpoises. You can you can rarely go a day without seeing porpoises swimming up the river. I was going to say there's that wonderful image after the Brisbane floods of the city drained and that, that golf course was left with the sand trap that was filled with sharks. Really? I did see that. That's terrifying, like absolutely terrifying. So one of the questions that I have is that the book featured 16-year-old Callie, and we've noticed recently a welcome increase in the number of female protagonists in young adult science fiction and fantasy, particularly, I guess, in the last sort of one to two decades. Did writing a female lead afford you any challenges? Um, look, I've done it before. Um, certainly one of my earlier adult novels has a female protagonist. Um, I don't know. She was just, I mean, I kind of had her in the voice right from the beginning, and so I guess I never felt worried about that aspect of it because she felt very complete to me right from right from the beginning. I do think that stuff's important, though. One of the things I love about, um, I, I saw that you did Sabriel, Garth Nix's book, on one of the earlier episodes, and one of the things I've always loved about Garth's books is that they, you know, they live in this kind of degendered world, you know, where lots of the characters are female and that's completely unexceptional. And, I mean, I, I would hope that this book's like that as well. You know, I mean, a number of the kind of major characters are female, but it seems to me it needs to be unexceptional. 
do you know what I mean? Like I don't want that to be about it about it being something that you pay attention to. I just want that to be part of the fabric of the world. I want a kind of equal opportunity world that it inhabits. I think that was actually one of the successes of the book. I really enjoyed reading about Callie's deep connection to her sister. To me, that felt very natural, her protection of her younger sister and the way that she was going to fight for her to the end. Yeah, it was just something that I really enjoyed. Oh, thank you. If I can kind of springboard off that one, the other thing that really struck me was the diversity of the characters as well. You often have these kinds of texts that talk about a great diaspora that might have happened in, you know, in an apocalyptic setting, but those people of other nationalities don't really get much representation in the actual text, whereas here it, it felt very real in terms of Indonesian characters and characters from Papua New Guinea and the like. Very Australian. <laughs> it was very Australian. It felt like reflective of a multicultural Australia. But was that a conscious kind of decision where you thought this needs to be real or did it just flow from your natural experience of living in Sydney, I guess? Oh, look, a bit of both. I mean, one of the things I'm always acutely aware of, particularly with Indonesia and um, Papua New Guinea, is that we've got these huge countries just off the north, which are huge, complex quite sophisticated societies and Australians really know nothing about them and don't even think about them. Mm. As soon as I started thinking, well, this is something that's pushed people down from the north, those people had to be here. And I mean, look, look, Kelly's half Nigerian. Matt, in my mind, although I don't think the book ever says so, is, is Chinese, you know. So, I mean, it is that kind of, that sense that the characters are, are multi-ethnic, which I guess, I don't know that it was deliberate, but I think once it had kind of come into place, I was pleased it was there. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's kind of what I was thinking too, because Keith and I are from Sydney as well. And so you do, I think, have much more of an awareness of the world outside of Australia to some extent. But then coming from Port Macquarie and coming from these country areas, you see that dichotomy, I suppose, and that, that lack of awareness that we exist in the world as opposed to simply here in Australia and and through the literature that we've looked at too. It is it is very male-dominated and it is very white by and large. Yeah, that's interesting. Look, I did want, I guess, I don't know that it was a conscious thing, but one of the things I was pleased about once I'd written a draft of the book was that it did seem to live in a, in a world that seemed reflective of the diversity of the society I'd kind of live in the middle of, but also that it felt more feminine. You know, there were lots of female characters, and it was not a very male book. Like, there's a whole lot of stuff in it about, you know, that I've written the, the other two in the sequence, and there's the characters don't pick up guns. I don't want them to do that. Do, do you know what I mean? That, mm. that kind of stuff. I don't want that kind of highly masculinised world. So that was that was quite deliberate, I think. Oh, I think, as Bree said, I think that was one of the great successes of the book. Keith, you want to change the pace up a little bit? <laughs> yeah, this is uh, not matching with the tone of the rest of this, but in the book, Gracie, she has a, a comfort toy bunny that Callie's constantly having to look after. As a parent with small children, I'm very familiar with the importance of such items. In my family, it's Winnie that's the star. Was Bunny inspired by a toy of your daughter's? I guess in summary, what I'm saying, is there a real life bunny? There was a real life bunny and we lost her. Um, <gasps> which was a catastrophe. It wasn't actually a bunny, it was a tinky, but yes, it got lost. There are still photos of it. But yes, it was a truly terrible, terrible, I'd say day, but in fact, it was a terrible three months. Uh, <laughs> very much inspired by something ridiculous. I was reading parenting tips not long ago saying that you if you have a bunny then you should have two bunnies one because if you if you lose it you've got one in reserve but if you don't lose it when they're 30 years later and they've still got their dirty worn out old teddy bear then you can bring out the new one and show them the difference between them <laughs> You never know that it's bunny until it becomes bunny often- <laughs> Right yep and and we did get a spare for Winnie and the problem is if you lose the winnie that's weathered, the spare winnie is nothing like that winnie because it takes a life of its own, having been held so much and sucked on and all those sort of things that kids do with toys like that. So, yeah, it's it's a good theory, but I don't think it plays out too well in reality. Yeah, I think kids have like a sixth sense to be able to identify, like even in, in a completely dark, soundless room, they would be able to identify the worn nature of their own toy. Yes. But also by its disgusting smell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was a rule with the, uh, the bunny analogue, which was if you could smell it from the hall when you were walking by, it had to be washed. <laughs> I would maybe recommend going a little bit earlier than that, James. <laughs> <laughs> it, it increases their disease 
tolerance if you are exposed yeah. to <laughs> Definitely. James, do you, like I do, secretly wish for some calamitous reset switch event to trim down the human race? Or do you think there's a chance that as a species we'll start showing some kind of real environmental responsibility and evoke change? Uh I increasingly suspect the answer to the second question is no. Yeah, right. The answer to the first question, I don't know that I hope for it, but I suspect that it may be coming. But I'm always a bit suspicious of that idea of, you know, of the kind of reset because any kind of reset involves wiping out half the human race, which is going to be a truly terrible thing. And there is something about those kind of fantasies of the apocalypse, which is very, it's both very seductive, but also... I think quite dangerous a lot of the time because it kind of tricks us into thinking there are these kind of magical solutions that can come along right. instead of forced to kind of grapple with it. I must say my last book, Clay, was very much about saying that there are no magical solutions. There's just this. We've got to deal with it. This book is, you know, it's a kind of darker book in lots of ways. And, you know, and it's not a it's not a straight climate change book or anything like that, but it's very much about a kind of profoundly altered environment and one in which you've got this kind of inexorable inhuman force changing things. And that was very much about trying to say, look, what happens if, if this happens? Like what happens if the world becomes so transformed that we, we no longer recognise it? And so that was something I was very much thinking about when I was, when I was writing the book. As the series goes on, it becomes about kind of how do we accommodate with this? How do we work with it? What's the kind of outcome of this process? The answer is nothing good. <laughs> Thanks for that hopeful message. Yeah. <laughs> We've still got two books to go, Pat. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Maybe we'll see a bright side in there at some point. But I, I think there was a moment even in the book where I, I believe it was Callie was saying maybe it would be better if the forests and the lantana just reclaimed everything, that people just kind of disappeared. There's a kind of misanthropy about that. But, you know, I'm going to have to say yeah, absolutely. When you, when you live in a world where we're watching the Great Barrier Reef die at the same time as we're building the world's biggest coal mine next to it, you do occasionally feel that perhaps it would be better for the world if the human race just went. Mm. So, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of – I'm not suggesting that that isn't a – you know, the misanthropy is a good thing, but you can certainly see where it comes from and relate to it, or I can. Yeah, absolutely. I, I see what you're saying there too, in that it, that there's that kind of pull to that because it removes our agency entirely. We don't have to fix it because it will fix itself one way or another. Uh, absolutely. And that that is one of the things that, I mean, I think we're all a bit seduced by that all the time. And I think one of the things I really want to talk about with the book is we, you know, we talk a lot about the physical changes of these things, but we don't talk about the psychic disturbance that comes with all of these things. And I wanted a sense of the kind of weirdness and the strangeness of a world where things are just I mean, we feel it now. Things are just getting, the weather's getting weirder. The the animals aren't behaving the way they should. You know, that, that kind of sense that the weird is pushing its way into the world. You know, I wanted that metaphor that would capture that, I guess. Mm, and not just the slow changes. Like we had the, the scare with the bees for a while and, and I'm still not sure that's resolved itself. But, you know, these big changes that will suddenly spike up and really terrify us. And, and yet, biggest coal mine in Australia is going up. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But I mean, it is that stuff's really interesting, isn't it? Because there is a thing about one thing I've become more and more fascinated by over the last few years is our capacity to to kind of hold two ideas in our head at once. We all know now that there's so much warming locked in, there's so much damage locked in that really bad things are coming probably within a generation, probably sooner. Yet our lives continue. Like there's this weird kind of dissonance where we know that but don't know it at the same time. It's a very strange... Thing. And one thing that I think you can do with this kind of, with fiction particularly, is to make those things tangible to people, you know, and, and to make them feel what a world that's disturbed in that way might be like. It's really the perfect vehicle for sci-fi. When you're trying to talk about things like climate change, they're so huge and inhuman and difficult to kind of capture. But then you go to science fiction, it's got an entire language it's spent a century developing for talking about, you know, deep time, you know, transformative change, all of those kinds of things. So, I mean, it you know, alienation, the uncanny, all of those things, they're all things that science fiction does really, really well. So, you know, it is, as you say, the kind of perfect vehicle for talking about those kinds of anxieties. Science fiction isn't something that I read a lot of growing up. I found that section of the bookshops fairly daunting to look at. I always tended to go for things like Anne of Green Gables, <laughs> Little Women, all of those sorts <laughs> of classics, as I've subjected these guys to over the last few months of our podcast. 
Is there anything from the bookshelves of your youth, James, that you would like to revisit or that you hold fond memories of? Yeah, look, absolutely. Three of my favourite books in the world are the Earthsea, the original three of the Earthsea trilogy, that Wizard of Earthsea, Tunes of Atuan, Atuan, I don't actually know how you say it, Atuan, I always said it, and The Father Shaw. I, I mean, I quite like the ones that come after that, but those three, I must have read them 50 times. I, I, I read them <laughs> over and over again. Um, uh Whenever my life is really dismal, I go back and read them again and they make me happy. Um, <laughs> uh, nice. in a sad kind of way. But look, when I was writing this book, it was because, I mean, I found over the last few years I was going back and reading a lot of books I'd read when I was a teenager, which had been really interesting. And then a number of them were kind of, although there wasn't that kind of young adult category then, they were kind of books aimed at teenagers. So things like John Christopher's Tripods books and books by Alan Garner like Redshift and John Wyndham's books, which again, were not aimed at teenagers, but, you know, were devoured by teenagers when I was a teenager. And I guess those books fed into this book in a sense, because I want, you know, one of the things I love about those books is their, is their spareness and their directness and their, you know, there's a kind of unsentimentality about them, which I really, really like, you know, and they're quite different in lots of ways to contemporary more contemporary YA a lot of the time. So, I mean, there were certainly things I had in my mind. Which I, I, I like also the kind of weirdness of them and that kind of slightly metaphysical edge, you know, so that, that in my mind they're always tied up with a whole lot of TV shows I loved when I was a kid, like The Tomorrow People and because I'm really old. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 not the remake, the original. Uh, <laughs> uh, show, shows like that. So they're very tangled up in all of those kind of English science fiction shows from the 70s as well. You can't say that you're very old because when you were saying tripods in the Alan Garner books, I'm like, yes, yes, I'll have to revisit the Weird Stone of Brisbane Garman. <laughs> Weird Stone of Brisbane Garman, great. Weird Stone of Brisbane Garman, he wrote, because uh, there's that and then there's the sequel, which is called um, uh, Moon of Gomrath. Oh, yes. No, not the one. There's Moon of Gomrath, but then he never finished the trilogy and about three years ago he published this bizarre book called Boneland, which is a kind of final volume in the thing and it's it's a really weird book and it's all about his kind of depression and breakdown and the main boy who's has lost the sister and he's grown up alone and he spent all this time in therapy and he's talking about that and it's one of those extraordinary books that I'm not even sure it's a novel. It's just this weird thing that he's kind of excavated from his brain. It's extraordinary. Oh no. I cannot I cannot imagine it yeah I cannot imagine a teenager wanting to read it, but it's an extraordinary and extraordinarily weird book. It doesn't sound like the ideal capstone to your young adult reading experience. <laughs> no, not really. But I, I really liked it. I think I liked it. I, I was fascinated by it. Does that make sense? If you're still thinking about it and talking about it. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Are those the things that pushed you to YA yourself to write in that space? Um, look, I don't know. I think I had been thinking about it for a while. I've got a couple of friends who are YA writers who I spend quite a lot of time with and I, you know, so I talk about them a lot with them. Um, so I guess I'd been thinking about it. I don't know that I set out to write a YA novel once I had kind of teenage protagonists, I realised, and that was quite early on because the book started very much with an image about these two kids in a flooded landscape. And, and once I had them, I think I kind of realised I was writing for younger readers. So that was mm. – but that was actually really – that was really fun. It was just a different way of writing, you know, and that was really exciting. And it's also, I wrote this first book just after I finished Clade, and Clade is a book which is, in a sense, a book with no central narrative. It's made up of pieces, you know, it's, it's about this kind of accretive, almost kind of musical structure. And to be suddenly writing a book which is all about we are trying to get from A to B and people are trying to stop us, you know, it was... <laughs> Just just that kind of burst of narrative was so different to what I'd been doing for the last couple of years and it was really exciting at the time. Mm. This is a really serious question. On a, on a scale of R.L. Stein to George R.R. R. Martin, how long do you think we'll be waiting for the sequel? Oh, I can answer that question. It's coming out at the end of the year because it's written. Oh, fantastic. Woo. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I wrote the second one before I... Um, the honest truth is I have a bad habit of falling over on projects and I wrote the first book <laughs> and then I thought I should try and do something with it because I hadn't told anyone I was doing it. And and then I thought, no, but what happens if I go and sell it to a publisher and then discover I can't write book two? So I went and wrote book two and at that point I, I went, 
and and kind of sold them. So book two is written, and book three is mostly written. <laughs> I get a bit suspicious of people that say they've written their books when we talk about our friend Patrick Rothfuss, who allegedly has written the whole series, but decided he needed to go back and rewrite them over the course of is it three decades or something now, Patrick? <laughs> it's just been a little while. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good. Well, that sounds promising. Laurie actually has a policy of not reading any books in a in a planned series that hasn't been completed. Do you care to comment on that policy, James? It's because I think it's absolutely ludicrous. <laughs> I have a couple of friends who have the same policy. Was it directly out of Robert Jordan? It's directly out of George R. R. Martin, I think. Uh, most uh, of them. Oh, look, you know, I mean, I would be sorry not to have read Game of Thrones, even if George dies tomorrow and we never hear the end of it. Um I don't know. I, 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 my problem with reading books as they come out is I can never remember what happened in the last one when I get to the new one. Mm, if mm. it's a long time between drinks. Oh, I know. And I'm much too lazy to go back and read the one before. So it's like I always wish they'd give me like a page long pricey at the beginning of what happened in the other one. So I could just read that and go, oh, that's right. That's who that person is. Instead of sitting there for 100 pages going, who the hell is this person? I've completely forgotten who this minor character is and they seem to be really important. <laughs> I actually have the same problem as much as I re about not reading them until they all come out. Stephen King does a pretty good job in the Dark Tower series of giving a bit of a summary at the start of each book. In fact, in some cases, I'm sure I've read parts in the summaries that weren't actually in the books. Just slipping it in there because he's forgotten to get it in place. Just just a little bit of a retcon. Exactly, yeah. Well, it's the great, it must be the great terror, though. I mean, if you're writing something... I mean, that was one of the other reasons I wanted to get them written before it came out, because I didn't want to get into the third one and discover that I'd made some horrible mistake and I wouldn't be able to change it by the time I, <laughs> by the time I, I had to go back. It would be terrible. You know, I've killed that character and I need them back. <laughs> I was going to ask about the writing process, actually. And essentially, do you have a process? You say you sometimes fall over on projects and that kind of thing. And I know there are some writers who say they have a really disciplined, I sit down at 9am and I write until 12pm and then I have a 25-minute tea break, no more, no less, and then I come back. I mean, is, is that how you churn out a book like this or do you have something a bit more flexible? Um, oh, look, I have small kids and I have a – they're not that small anymore, but I, they were small when I was writing this – and I, ha- I work a lot, so it, I write a lot of other things, so I'm, I'm often really busy. Look, I, I have a real thing about you write something as briskly as you can because there's you, you've kind of got to have your head in it to be working on it. You can't be mm. coming back to it over again. And the, the only way to do that is to have a kind of rule about kind of I write a bit every day or, or something like that. But I'm not actually terribly disciplined. Like I'm terrible. I can spend hours on Facebook and I can, you know, I, I, I'm not nearly as disciplined as I would like to be. But, you know, these in a sense, they were actually quite quick to write because I was enjoying it. You know, it's that thing where once you're really into something, you, you're you really enjoying it. And certainly when I finished the second one, you know, I, I basically started the third one the next day. It was, mm. you know, well, partly because it ends on a cliffhanger. And I'm like, okay, now I'm going to write the next bit. But it was a, it was very much about kind of enjoying the process. That actually gives me a little bit of hope because I, I, I'm terribly undisciplined. Every time I try and put pen to paper, I go, and I just want to change that previous sentence. And maybe if I rejig the one before that, now I end up with three chapters and nothing else after, you know, three years of slaving. Yeah, no, no. Be like a shark. Just keep moving forward. If you stop, you drown. Um, you can always change it later. <laughs> I think that's probably sage advice. And then you, you end up with this sort of, I don't even know what to call them, testimonials on the on the cover of your, your book. I know you have people like Garth Nix who you've mentioned a couple of times. I know you've done podcasts and things with him in the past, but is it a good feeling when you have people coming out and saying, actually, this is really good. This is something that I can get behind? That's really lovely. You know, I mean, the whole thing about kind of reviews and things is very difficult. You know, I mean, it is that thing where you, you know, it means a lot that people like it. It means a lot that people respond well to things. But simultaneously, you can't let that be your, you know, you can't let that be the thing that you're doing it for because it then means you've got to take on board all of the people who don't like it and people are always mm. not like things you do. So, but look, it's a, it, that's been great. You know, and one of the things that has been lovely about this is it's had really great responses from people, which has been nice. You know, having spent years doing a whole kind of, oh, I do it for the art routine. I mean, I found it when I wrote Play. Suddenly having people say I liked it meant meant a lot. 
it's it's a long process writing a book and it can be very lonely and it's always very nice when someone likes it at the end. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Keith, what can we look forward to from the remaining two books in the series? I know we've got a bit of a cliffhanger at the end of the first book. We'd like an answer to that, of course, but uh, <laughs> is it thematically very similar or does it take a different direction? <laughs> Um, look, when I started writing them, I was very clear that they described a kind of pattern. So the first one is very local. It's just these kids in a kind of landscape moving through it. The second one, it's the same characters, but they are all one of the same. Kelly's still in it. But in a sense, it's on a larger scale. So there's more going on. She's in the zone. It's about what's in the zone. And then the third one is kind of cosmic and off-world. So they're, they're, quite, they're quite different in, I guess they're different in scope, but they're probably similar in, 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 I guess, kind of sensibility and perhaps not tone exactly, but but they describe a single thing. So I did really want to write like one big book that was in three bits, but each bit was distinct enough to be its own book, if that makes sense. But yeah, I wanted that very local, global, cosmic structure. Keith mentioned the final line there. When you penned that ending, did you hear in your mind thousands, hundreds of thousands of readers crying out in agony? <laughs> um, um, you should see the end of the second book. <laughs> uh, someone she said to me the other day, like, you know, what a, you know, when's the second book? And, and I said, oh, soon. I just got a bigger cliffhanger. And they said, it cannot be bigger. And I'm like, oh, no, it's bigger. <laughs> Yeah, look, I, I, I wanted a book that, you know, because it does kind of get you somewhere. It sort of ends. And then I wanted that the hand of Ming the Merciless comes in and picks up the ring and goes, ho, 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 kind of moment. Where you go, oh, no. So that was kind of deliberate. I wanted that sense that you complete a journey and then something happens, which I, I always I always love because it's a real kind of raw, one of those moments of pure narrative pleasure, isn't it? That thing where you suddenly go, oh, my God, you know, that, that yeah. person's there. So I, I wanted it to have that response. Yes, I did. I think in the uh, blurb for this episode, we'll have to say we're joined by noted author and sadist James Bradley. <laughs> <laughs> Talking of a, a cliffhanger at the end of book two, now all I can imagine is Callie suited up in a power loader and saying, get away from her, you bitch. <laughs> I should have had that. <laughs> <laughs> James, this has just been great. Thank you so much for joining us. It was amazing. Oh, no, thank you for having me. It's been fantastic. And congratulations on an absolutely fantastic book too with a very Australian flavour. Oh, thank you. I'm, glad you. I'm really glad you liked it. All the best with the following weeks of the launch and even more so now, I'm looking forward to book two. Bring on Christmas. <laughs> yes, thank you. Thank you. It's lovely to kind of meet you all. Cheers, James. That was great. That was good. He was lovely. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, is he gone, guys? <laughs> what did we think? <laughs> I like the book a lot more now that I've heard him speak about it. <laughs> actually, his description of what happens with the scope of the books, that actually is really intriguing to me. Yeah, going on to a bigger, more macro kind of level. Yeah, that's right. Mm. It's almost like get people interested in this book that's a little bit science fiction and then by the end of it you're deep in this really massive science fiction world. That's what it sounds like to me, which isn't a bad thing. I'm just grateful that I've had this introduction to fantasy. Well, I suppose it, I know this isn't fantasy. Okay, so this introduction to science fiction from you guys over the last couple of years and also science fiction television shows, thanks, Laurie, over the last little while. <laughs> Because it meant that I had an appreciation, I guess, that I wouldn't have had before for the the change or how these otherworldly beings had become something other or something else. And I kept thinking about Battlestar Galactica and the... The Cylons. The Cylons, yeah, that's right. Or about replicants from Blade Runner or those sorts of things that made me appreciate this a little bit. It does have a lot of those overtones, doesn't it? Look at you dropping names. I know! I know! <laughs> Yeah, I'm very, I'm very impressed by your sci-fi knowledge, oh. Bree. You're killing it. Oh, thanks, guys. I've been, I've been working hard at it. <laughs> I've even, I think, got my genres down to a very close to a fine art. <laughs> <laughs> what the the sci-fi fantasy split? Yeah, that's right. I'm almost there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you're doing well. Yeah, I'm, I'm proud of you, Bree. I feel like you came to us a small child, and now you're a grown fantasy woman. <laughs> I wasn't joking though, though, about when I was a 
young person, there were books written for teenagers and that that fantasy, dark, sci-fi section of a bookshop was quite daunting. The covers were always really hard to come at and... The covers, something about sci-fi and fantasy, especially in the, I guess, books from the 80s, 90s that Laurie and I would have been picking up, something about the covers and stuff was just so bad. They always looked like crappy romance novels with people with long flowing gowns and... And dwarves and hideous creatures. Yeah. Burly men with swords carrying swooning women and that kind of thing. Like, they were bad. They were really unapproachable. Yeah, exactly. Mm, I, I, I totally agree with that. They're off-putting. And I think unless you have that familiarity with the genre and almost the tropes of the covers, uh, you would get very put off because you don't realise that there can actually be some quality content between these two sheets that seem almost designed to deter people. Mm-hmm. I think more than any other genre as well, a cover can really make or break fantasy books. Mm. Sci-fi, they're a little bit more samey, I found, but if you've got a really bad fantasy cover, I think you're doomed. It can make it too, because there have been times where I've seen, thus is the frequency with which I attend bookstores. I go to them and I go, ah, that looks like a reprint of this book that I've seen on the shelf before. That looks like a new cover design. And if I like that cover design more, I might be intrigued enough to pick it up and run with it, which I did with J.V. Jones' series, The Baker's Boy, something like that, back in the day, another fantasy series that I really liked and picked up on spec based on a cover redesign. Mm. So, yeah, I can see where you're coming from, Brie. It's not quite like that anymore. I think they've really made an effort. Marketing, brand, all of those things have made a difference. You have to have something enticing to get people to come into the store and pick it up off the shelf. I certainly think that it's not quite as foreboding to go through the shelves. I'm not quite so off-put, I don't think. Yeah. Just in terms of the gender split for protagonists, Mm. I think at some point, I think even post-Potter, you know, pre-Potter, there there were books that had female protagonists and some of them were excellent and some of them quite popular. But I'd say post-Potter when there were suddenly a lot of kids that had read something fantastical in Harry Potter, I think that a lot more... A lot more publishers woke up. They woke up to the ratio of women reading books to men. (laughs) There's still a ways to go. Keep going. No, (laughs) women apparently read a lot more than men. Exactly. Yeah, but, yeah, you're right. There's still improvements to be made in terms of um, how they're targeted. Yeah, suddenly a few fantasy books came out that had female protagonists and maybe had some theoretical subject matter that might have been a bit more attractive to the female audience. It shouldn't make a difference, but something like Twilight, which obviously we don't count as quality, but had (laughs) a female protagonist, had fantastical elements. I think it was that that era that things really turned around for seeing a lot more women in, in books, women as lead characters in books, and I've quite enjoyed it. Yeah, and not just in those traditionally female roles. They just are good roles. Hunger Games and Divergent come immediately to mind in terms of those very popular ones, but they are just good, strong roles, full stop. Well, that's very in keeping with uh, what James said, isn't it, Mm. that he kind Mm. of envisaged the book as... I mean, I I don't know the the exact term that he used, but unbound from gender and and gender roles and that kind of thing and just having, I want to put a female lead in the Mm. book and then write the story, essentially. And I think that's something fantastic that does seem to be happening a little bit more. It was kind of like, here's our lead who happens to be female. It's not, here's our female lead. That's right. Yeah, exactly. I think actually... To take it back to what you were saying, Brie, young adult fiction is perhaps now the only category where female authors are now, I think, outnumbering males. So it's fantastic to see that the balance of power is shifting, perhaps. That's a really bad way of putting it, but (laughs) 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 a really bad spin on a really good thing. Sorry about that. I, for one, welcome our new overlords. (laughs) (laughs) See, I couldn't have laughed at a joke like that 12 months ago. (laughs) 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 I really liked it I thought it it was It sat firmly within the pantheon of books like Divergent The Maze Runner The Hunger Games In that dystopian society setting But the fact that it felt close to home That it was based in 
the country that I live in, the various cities I've lived in, even where I grew up, it, it felt like it had that personal connection. And I felt glad that somebody was writing for an audience like me, perhaps half my age, but regardless, in a way that I could really get into, that I could really enjoy. And obviously, YA has been one of my great pleasures over the past year or so. So, yeah, I thought it was phenomenal. What about you, Bree? I was particularly a fan of the relationship between Callie and her younger sister. I have a sister and I feel that I would fight to the end for her. Very protective. I know that she loves me, but I'm not sure that she would go to the, such an end the oh, degree. No. To... <laughs> There's something about older sister, younger sister, I think. It's not a motherly relationship, but it's certainly this fierce pride and, yeah, fierce protection and wanting to get her to the end. So would she see you start to change and she'd be like, oh, I guess we better call the authorities. <laughs> Nothing we can do. <laughs> she was nice, but, you know, that's all over now. <laughs> Having met your sister, I would suggest that, yes, she would, and she might do it a little bit better than you would. <laughs> oh, I'm not saying that I would do it well. I'm saying that I would fight to the end for her. You're not the most capable survivalist in that relationship. I think we actually probably need each other to get to the end, to be honest. <laughs> we always thought that if we did the amazing race, then I would drive and she would do the navigation because I'm a bit of a maniac and she's got good directions. <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe uh, you would fight for her to the end, but it would just be a kind of abbreviated end. Like this, would be a, this, this would be a 15-page book where they get caught running across the street in the first chapter. Uh, we tried. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> Yeah, so I really liked that part of the book, uh, that relationship. And I think that I look forward to the next one to find out what the the bigger picture is going to be. Laurie, do you agree that I would take out my sister or she'd take me out? <laughs> I didn't know you were in conflict. I thought it was who could rescue each other better. <laughs> yeah, truth comes out. Could she rescue me more? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> You're a very intelligent and canny woman, but uh, I think if the two of you were both having to club somebody over the head, I think she could swing the club a little harder. (laughs) I really liked the book, not just because it was a free review copy and we had the author on the line. (laughs) And it's more about the humanity and dealing with the humans than it is really about the monsters at this point. I felt like I was reading an Australian alien spore-based version of The Walking Dead where it's, yeah, it's more about what humans are doing to each other rather than what's happening to, to the world around them. Can I ask for your speculation about the, the change? Are they going to be these kind of maleficent influences or are they going to be? I think you know the answer to that for me, right? Like my scepticism through the whole thing was. Are you going to tell me it's all a metaphor and it's not even happening? (laughs) (laughs) The government is clearly trying to reduce numbers because we have, I don't know, treated this earth so poorly that we can't sustain ourselves long term. No, the government doesn't care about that. So they're in cahoots with these aliens. (laughs) <laughs> so you think the government's released the spores, not the aliens? Like yes. Alien? Nah. Yep, it's like a an infection. Only the fittest shall survive. I'm 100% certain that James told us they were alien spores. Yeah, he did. <laughs> <laughs> what does he know? No, it just means that when I read through my review notes, I actually have to cut out like six pages of them after sentence one from James Bradley. <laughs> Well, do you want to just give him a call back, Brie, and maybe give him a few corrections for the subsequent books? <laughs> oh, book, book two has been delayed because Brie's got some edits. <laughs> we'll be looking at April, May, maybe, maybe December 2018 after Brie has the Brie cut. At least it's not in their heads. It's just the government this time. <laughs> oh, dear. I'd like how you said, like, you know what I think. Like, we're all familiar with your conspiracy theory, (laughs) anti-government type positions. That's never what you talk about. (laughs) No, it's just my innate, it isn't what you think it is, it's the opposite. (laughs) Just scepticism. Oh, it isn't. It isn't what it seems. You're you're wrong. Is the, 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 is the gist? Ah, finally, you get where I've been going in my whole life. I hear what you're saying, but no. <laughs> 
It also had a little bit of a dreadful road trip story. Dreadful because of what's happening to them, not because it's terrible. Complete with, like, the horrible Hastings region hillbilly types. So... (laughs) Is that what your people are really like? I'm talking about, like, the out-of-towners. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was kind of Wolf Creek-ish, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, what's the other one with the uh, with the banjos, dueling banjos? Ding, 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 ding. Oh, uh, Deliverance. Yeah, Deliverance. Yeah, a bit Deliverance. <laughs> it wasn't Ugh. really Deliverance. That's pretty it was, dark. <laughs> it was like, yeah, it was young adult appropriate wolf creep. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, don't scare any potential readers off, Larry. <laughs> I enjoyed the fact that whilst the alien spores have been changing people, animals and flora, robbing them of their personality, there's no chest-bursting aliens or violent assaults from the alien front. It's just that slow, inevitable absorption of everything we know. And that's scarier. Yeah, it's because it's an infection. And that's scarier in some ways, but a bit more calm and peaceful in others. So I liked that balance. I think the parallels with something like perhaps dementia, where you begin to lose some of yourself, your mind, your personality, that's that's terrifying. Mm. It's scarier. I do think it is scarier than dueling banjo psychopaths. Right. Yeah. At this stage in this book one, I think it's all about the adventure. You know, it's about that trip. It's about heading north to get to the zone. There's not oodles of character progression which is something I'd like to see more of in in the subsequent books. But still, very enjoyable. That cliffhanger ending, though, ouch, (laughs) that's painful. It was brutal. Mm. And you could tell that he enjoyed it, too. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) He he put it perfectly. It is that very enjoyable sensation Mm. to have something revealed, but then the pain of having to wait is is difficult, so... Mm. Yeah, thankfully it's not going to be too long a wait, so that was very encouraging to hear. So, yeah, for me, I really liked the way that this was set in Australia. It was done so in a way that wasn't overwhelming, but as an Australian myself, it really gave it a very vivid setting. And I don't think it's exclusionary to people outside Australia, but certainly if you're in Australia, it's going to be much more relatable. It was a real page turner as well. As Laurie said, the character development didn't go into too much depth. I think we were kind of here learning what the characters, in particular Callie, are capable of. I like the way in which she wasn't this end product to begin with. She would constantly make poor decisions in their attempts to get away from the authorities. And I liked that she was grounded by those sort of things and felt more relatable because of that. It was really atmospheric in parts as well, particularly towards the ending. And I thought he was very effective in making this strange, and, and Laurie talked a lot about this strange evil that was present, unknown, I, I should say, rather than evil. And I thought that was really effective and immersive. And yeah, I'm dying to read the next book. It's difficult to talk about a book like this without giving too much away. And that's why for once, I'm going to be quite brief. Sorry, we've all gone off to get a cup of tea because we're not used to you being so brief. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Keith. I guess that takes us to scoring with me. Now, given the alien flora in the book looks so analogous to fungi and the infection or the change turns creatures blue, let's go with one star, a little bit clumsy, Smurf, two stars. (laughs) You know how you say that in French? Schtroumpf. I was hoping that you'll do the translations as I go. Ah, schtroumpf. Can can you just say it one more time, Brie? Schtroumpf. Uh, it's actually got an R in there. S C H T R O U M P F. Strumpf. Okay. I don't actually know what the names are. If you want, if you really want me to do it, I'll have to look them up. That seems like a word engineered to be difficult. Strumpf. Yeah, probably. It's Belgian, actually. I was going to say it sounds German. It's probably Flemish. I would say. It certainly is a bit Flemish when I say it. <laughs> 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 We have to cut out some of this laughing because it's just... No, it's good. (laughs) Two stars, baby Smurf, a cute start but needs developing. Three stars, handy Smurf, jack of all trades, master of some. Four stars, brainy Smurf, really clever stuff. Or five stars, Smurfette, a book apart to be loved by the entire village. (laughs) That one I know, that's (laughs) Strumpfette. Who would have thought? (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's go with Patrick. 
I actually really liked it, and I I found it a pretty massive page turner, as Keith said. I, I found myself just tearing through it. So I'm probably going to give it four four point five. Oh, huh. alrighty, four point five. We're gonna gonna split the difference between Papa Smurf and whatever the other one was. Uh, no, Papa Smurf, Smurfette, and the other one, <laughs> Brainy. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know who Brady Smurf is, but yeah, it's most of the way to a Smurfette. This one for me is a Stromfalunette, which is a Smurf with glasses, which is Brainy Smurf. So for me, this is four stars. Keith? Did you just look that up? Did you Google? Yeah, I totally did. I totally looked that up. <laughs> How dare you? Yeah, I'm, I'm in the Brainy Smurf camp here as well, and I think it's a fitting Smurf to champion this book because it was a book that made me think as well as that made me turn the pages. Laurie, how about yourself? Yeah, for me, it was a Stromf omelette as well. Uh, four stars. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I had a really enjoyable little episode. Yes. Me too, except I was a little bit giggly and starstruck because, you know, an actual author wanted to talk to us. He was really good to talk to. It was, it was really good. I just wanted to say thank you to James for joining us again. And his book, The Silent Invasion, is available now in hard copy and online in ebook form. And thank you, as always, for listening. Feel free to share your thoughts with us on Facebook or Twitter at Seeking Tumnus. Next episode, we return to the previously mentioned rare collector item that Keith's been dying to inflict upon you. Christopher Pike's <laughs> Master of Murder from 1992 on Seeking Tumnus. Until then, here's a preview of a theoretical sequel to Silent Invasion, written about one of the completely changed. Yo, listen up, here's a story about a little guy that lives in a blue world, and all day and all night and everything. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, my God. Inside Please and don't. Blue there is some going through my head. Thanks for listening. Bye. The Silent Innovation is available now in stores. Everybody around, because he ain't got nobody to listen. Definitely gonna put that to the music. And keep reading. Put it to the sword, mate. Yeah, that's gotta go. Christopher Pike's Master of Horror from 1992. Murder. Oh, is it? Yeah, Master of Murder. Murder. <laughs> How dare you disrespect it. <laughs>